The episode you're about to listen to was released back when the Mere Christians podcast was called The Call to Mastery. Now, if you love Mere Christians, you're still going to love these older episodes because the majority of each conversation focuses on how the gospel influences the work of our guests. With that disclaimer out of the way, please enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, welcome to The Call to Mastery. I'm Jordan Rayner. This is a podcast for Christians who want to do their most exceptional work for the glory of God and the good of others. Every single week, I'm hosting a conversation with somebody who is following Jesus Christ, apprenticing themselves to Jesus Christ, and who's also pursuing world-class mastery of their vocation, of their jobs. We talk about each guest's path to mastering their thing. We talk about their daily habits and routines. And we talk about how their faith influences the work that they do. Today, I'm going to share a conversation I recently had with one of my closest friends, Kelly Stewart, and also one of the most masterful writers I know. Now, Kelly writes fiction, so you shouldn't take my opinion on who's a masterful fiction writer or not, since I don't read much of it. Uh, But that claim of being a masterful fiction writer comes from Kelly and I's mutual friend, Doug Gresham, C.S. Lewis's stepson and the producer of the most recent Narnia movies with Disney, and Doug's now working on this Narnia series with Netflix. Doug read Kelly's book and devoured it, has loved everything that she's written, and if that's not a great endorsement for fiction, I don't know what is. Uh, I can think of few people more qualified to judge great fiction than the heir to the Lewis estate. So Kelly and I had a very fun conversation that you're about to hear. We talked about the epic dinner I had with Doug Gresham in London and a couple of buddies of mine that led to him loving Kelly's work and her book. We talked about Kelly's process for writing great fiction. And we talked about what John Grisham had to say to Kelly's class at Baylor about why he doesn't write quote-unquote Christian fiction. I thought this was a really interesting part of the conversation. So without further ado, here's my conversation with my good friend, a masterful writer, Kelly Stewart. Kelly Stewart, how are you? I'm good, thanks. So... I want to start here because I mentioned this in the introduction. We were hanging out at your house last week, two weeks ago, mm-hmm. with a bunch of people from church, and you mentioned the endorsement, the unsolicited yes. endorsement <laughs> that you just received from our mutual friend, Doug Gresham, C.S. Lewis's stepson, producer of the Narnia movies with Disney, and he's executive producing the Netflix series, right? That's what I hear. Yeah. That's wherever that project is in development. Right. So how that endorsement come about for this most recent book? Like you send him the book and he's like, hey, here's some kind words about the book. Basically. So he had read my first novel and he and I had just kind of had some back and forth emails about writing and the writer life. And he was just very encouraging to me. So just as a thank you, I had sent him the second novel. Which is... A Silver Willow by the Shore, which is released, just released October 23rd. And so... I had sent it to him just to say thank you. And, you know, I'd love for you to read it and give me your thoughts, some feedback on it. If there's anything I need to fix, because I still had some time. And he just sent me this email with this wonderful endorsement. And I was just, I was floored. And you didn't ask. I didn't. I was not expecting it. And What did he say? You know, he just said... Kelly's a very talented writer. I I really enjoyed her first book. You know, one always wonders if someone writes a good first book, if they'll be able to follow it up. And she did. She kept me glued to the page. Just wonderful. I mean, just things that kind of make you feel warm and fuzzy. Because anytime you write a book, especially a novel, and you put it out there, there's always this thing of, does it suck? Are people just being nice to me? And so to have the unsolicited feedback from someone whose opinion I do really admire was was wonderful because he's very well read and he's very honest about books. He's extremely well read mm-hmm. and he's C.S. Lewis's stepson. I mean, he's, right, he's, he's you know, <laughs> spent his life steeped in the best fiction right. ever written in global history, right? Yeah, so, I mean, much. you know, there's that. But he's also like... Doug's like the most generous person yes, in the he world. Yes, he's very kind, very warm-hearted, very, very encouraging. Yeah. So I value his opinion very much because I know he's not blowing smoke. He's not just trying to be nice. One, I didn't even ask him to. And two, because I, 
if he didn't like it, he wouldn't have said anything. No, he's pretty critical. Like right. w- w- when he doesn't like something, he's pretty critical. So can I take at least partial credit for the Doug Kelly friendship? I, I feel like you probably <laughs> should because it basically is because of you that we know well, each other. Well, it's really because of your husband. My husband. So in the yes. dinner. At the Gorey. Yes. The dinner. The dinner that my husband says goes down in history as one of the greatest nights of his life. It is. I was just telling my producer, Chris, that it is like top five greatest nights of my life. So I guess we can bring everybody up to speed. Yes. So for those of you listening, if you were following my content back in 2017 when I released Call the Crate, you know we gave away a trip to Europe for two people to do a bunch of things. And then the trip culminated with a dinner with Doug Gresham, C.S. Lewis's stepson, and myself at the Goring Hotel in London. So we gave away the trip to this actually like super talented entrepreneur in South Carolina named Erica, who I, I'm actually hoping will come on the podcast. But I kind of took like author privileges and decided that I would bring two of my best friends along with me to dinner. Like, I didn't want to go to London by myself. I don't know if they gave you a choice either. Well, that's true. pretty sure that my husband invited himself and said, I'll be there. (laughs) So I was taking, I was going to take my best friend, Clay. And then one day, Kelly, Kelly's husband, Lee, gives me a call. He's like, hey, I booked a ticket to London. (laughs) I'm coming to dinner. Lee's a massive C.S. Lewis fan. So I was like, okay, I guess we're going to Europe together. (laughs) And so this night's amazing. So we get to London. We got to London a little bit early. And we were like, all right, let's just show up early. And maybe Doug's like hanging out. We can have some time with him alone before the winners of the sweepstakes get there. So we show up. And sure enough, Doug is hanging out on the stoop of this hotel. This hotel is incredible. It's called the Goring Hotel. It's right behind Buckingham Palace. It's where the queen brings her staff for dinner every Christmas. So sure enough, Doug's there. He's like, hey, Jordan. He's like, are the winners, are these the winners? I was like, oh no, these are, you know, my buddies. Tag along. Yeah, these are like that. (laughs) This is my plus two. (laughs) And so he's like, cool. Do you guys, you guys want to hang out? Like, sure. So go to this back room. We have this like amazing 45 minute long conversation about halfway through it. Clay, my buddy, asked Doug, he just like went straight for the C.S. Lewis questions. He asked Doug why Susan didn't make it to, to Narnia. Why? <laughs> what happened to Susan? What, what happened to Susan? Tell us. And literally started crying. So I'm sitting there with my two grown men friends. Clay's not 13 and he's bawling right. talking about Susan not making it to the afterlife with Doug Gresham. This was for them. This was like their One Direction and <laughs> sing. This was their boy band moment. It was incredible. Doug so we go to dinner. Dinner's amazing. One of the best meals I've had in my life. It was really long too. I mean, I think we were at dinner for like two hours, two and a half hours or whatever. And as we're leaving, the winners of the sweepstakes left. They had something else to get to. But me and Clay and Lee hung back and we were talking to Doug and your husband, Lee, pulls out your book. He pulls out your first book, Like a River from its Course. And he's like, hey, I'm sure you could ask this all the time, but like, would you mind giving this a read? And like letting, you know, it, it was it was really just a gift. It was like, hey, this is my wife's book. And what happened after that? Well, what Doug told him was, I'll read it on the airplane. And if while I'm reading, if I don't like it, I'll leave it on the airplane. That's what I do with books that I don't like. And so Lee came home and he said, okay, either he's going to read the whole thing and like it or your books on an airplane somewhere over the Mediterranean. So uh, I fully anticipated (laughs) that my book was somewhere on an airplane over the Mediterranean. And then I guess... Doug reached out to you and said, you know, please forward this to the author of the novel. And it was just this wonderful email that again made me very emotional. And he very much enjoyed the book. He he loved it. He had wonderful things to say about it. So I just wrote back and it just kind of started this friendship where we were writing back. And before I knew it, he was sending me short stories that he had written for my opinion. And I was sending him some of my writing for his opinion. And we were talking about writing and what it was like to to work as a writer. And next thing I knew, we were, we were pals. That's awesome. So two more minutes on the Gorin story because yes. it does get better. <laughs> this is what makes it, this is what makes it like the, one of the greatest nights of my life. So Lee gives him the book. We take pictures, right? We all t- <laughs> we're like schoolgirls, yes. you know, hanging out with this. It was like it was. He's our Justin Bieber. <laughs> Doug, Doug is our Justin Bieber. And so we're about to leave, and he's like, "Where are you guys going?" And we're like, "We're leaving. We just had dinner with you for three and a half hours." And he's like, "No, no, no, come with me." And so we go back into the hotel, and he just like doesn't ask permission. 
walked behind the bar of the hotel. He knows all the staff. He's like, he basically owns the hotel. And he just opens up a drawer and gets this box of cigars out and turns around. And he's like, you guys smoke cigars? And we're like, we do night. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm not a big cigar smoker. Clay's a big one, but I'm like, whatever. And so we hung out for like another hour, like on the stoop of this hotel, talking about growing up with Jack, as he calls C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis, talking about kangaroo fighting. I remember that was a pretty hot topic of conversation because Doug grew up in Australia. Yes. Uh, and smoking cigars. And I just showed Chris before you got here. There's this epic picture of me and Doug smoking cigars on the stoop of the hotel with your book in his hand. You can see it right yes. there, like a river from its course. Yes. Kelly's Tucked start. under his arm. Yes. Yeah. It's very, it's very cool. So you guys will have to wait and see what the giveaway is for the next book, Master of One. We'll be talking about that in December. All right. Let's talk about you. You're a master of your craft. We've established that with seven minutes of rambling about Doug Gresham's <laughs> endorsements of you. But you're also an award-winning author. I mean, you yes. won awards for Like a River From Its Course. And this is like a dream for a lot of people, right? I think most people, yeah, I'll say most. I'm not going to say many. I think most people want to write a book, a lot of them fiction. And you had this dream years before it was a reality. Can you talk about your story and the path that kind of led you to the work that you're able to do today as a writer? I was always a writer. I mean, even just as a kid, that was just sort of what I did. But I never thought of it as a career until probably my junior year of college when a professor just submitted a paper without even asking me to a contest and it won. And he was like, hey, we have this major called professional writing. You might want to consider it. And I think at that point, I was on my fifth major anyway. I was like, sure, why not? I'm <laughs> What's learning <one> everything. <laughs> So I majored in professional writing. And and so I set out to become a writer from college. I wasn't an accidental writer. It wasn't one of those where I was, you know, I was blogging for a little while and someone reached out to me. It was, this was what I wanted to do. And I had studied, I also minored in Russian. I'd studied in Ukraine and I'd met this woman who survived a Nazi slave labor camp in World War II. And one of my classes, my senior year at Baylor, was to write a novel. Like that was the only assignment for the entire year to write a novel. So I decided to fictionalize her book. And at the end of the year, my professor told me, you know, I really think you're onto something with this, but you need more information. You didn't do more research. And so that just sort of set me on this path. So I graduated in 2000. In 2003, I had a publisher that was interested in the idea. I was pregnant with my first child. And I thought if I'm ever going to write this book, I have to go to Ukraine now and get the information. So five months pregnant, hopped on a plane. I didn't know this. Yes, it was not maybe the smartest thing I've ever done. (laughs) My mom did go with me because that was like the contingent. Yes, you may gallivant off to Ukraine for a month while you're pregnant, but you will have a chaperone. (laughs) So here I am, just 24-year-old pregnant girl with her mom (laughs) going around Ukraine talking to veterans. And I just happened to be able to meet with several veterans groups around different parts of Ukraine. And I got all these firsthand accounts of the war. And I happened to land the exact same day that we bombed Afghanistan. Wow. And also the exact same day that the news of the SARS virus broke out. So I land and I call my husband and I'm like, hey, it's really crazy here. People don't really like us Americans right now. And also I have this cough and I'm running a fever. (laughs) And, you know, my husband, my dad are freaking out. But it just ended up being an amazing month. I got these amazing stories and I came back with all these stories. And then, you know, life happens. Babies come along. Things get slowed down. You're just trying to figure out how to best tell the story and... So it was 2013, I think, before I finally finished the book. And I just, I couldn't give it up. I I kept thinking maybe maybe this is ridiculous. In the meantime, I'd started this blog and blogging was sort of taking off for me. And I was Mm. getting to travel all around the world for blogging assignments. Mm. But I didn't want to be a blogger. I wanted to be an author and I wanted to write fiction. And so... I just couldn't let go of this one idea. Hmm. So finally, I I finished it in 2013, started pitching it around and got, I believe I counted up my rejections at one point. I think it was 63. Wow. 63 rejections. It's a big number. Right. Before (laughs) I finally met someone face-to-face, and I have found that meeting agents face-to-face is Hmm. better than sending the the cold query letter. Hmm. So I met this agent face to face and she was like, well, we'll see. Fiction's a tough sell, which is what everyone would tell me. It drove me nuts. Hmm. But I gave her the manuscript. She loved it. She took off with it. So the book was published in 2016. And then in 2017, it went on to win the Carroll Award for Best Historical Fiction. It was nominated for two Christie Awards. So it's awesome. it was a long process, but it was it was worth it. It was, it was the story I needed to tell. A 10-year story 
in the making. Yes. It's incredible. And so that book, Like a River from Its Course, that was the one, I mean, we weren't super close friends back then when it was released. I mean, we knew mm-hmm. each other. I was at your launch party here in Tampa, but I had so many friends come to me and be like, this is one of the best pieces of fiction I've ever read. Mm. And I took their opinions pretty seriously because they're serious fiction people. I am not. Right. I read no fiction, <laughs> almost no fiction, but I did add your book to my reading list and I am going to read it mm-hmm. all the way through. I promise. <laughs> so speaking of my inability to understand fiction, I want to talk about I want to talk about the writing process, and I just have no idea how you write fiction at all, mm-hmm. right? So can you talk through the process? And let's – how about a book that didn't take, you know, 10 years? Let's go with – let's go with – because by the way, Kelly's written more – how many books have you written in the last two years? Two, three? I have finished two. I'm halfway yeah. through a third. She writes at a frenetic pace that we'll talk <laughs> about in a minute. She, I'll see her on Sunday morning. She'll tell me how many words she wrote. Like it makes me Hamilton. sick. Like Alexander write, Hamilton. Like I'm running out of time. That's exactly right. <laughs> so talk us through the process. So let's use this new book that's coming out. Well, it's just It just came out. A yes. Silver Willow by the Shore as an example. How do you go from the genesis of that idea to a completed manuscript? You know, when I finished Like a River from its course, I almost had this panic like, I'm going to be a one-hit wonder. You know, what's the the movie from the 90s? I don't want to be an Oneater. Don't be an Oneater. I didn't want to be just a one-hit wonder. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, one of my all-time favorites. That yes, thing you do. That thing you do. Ladies and gentlemen, the Oneaters. <laughs> the O-neaters. That's, that's the wonders? I did not want to be an Oneater. But I didn't have any more ideas. And so I started to sort of panic a little. And I was having conversations with my editor and or with my agent. And, and she was saying things like, well, you know, people need to know what to expect from you. So you should stick with the same genre. And I was thinking, what does that mean? I have to stick with historical fiction. Does it have to be Soviet historical fiction? I don't know. And so I just started reading a lot. Hmm. And I came across this book called The Whisperers. And it was all about, because I am interested in Soviet history, there's a lot of stories to tell. Hmm. And it was about an entire generation of people who survived under Stalin's purges hmm. in the 1930s. And, you know, people would just disappear in the middle of the night and be sent to Siberia and the gulags. And and it could be for something as inane as telling a joke that their neighbor didn't like and they'd hmm. be reported and they'd disappear. And so this whole generation of people became known as the whisperers because they were terrified to say anything because they didn't know what could send them away. And there was terrible persecution and racism. And so I just got this idea of what would it be like to be raised by someone who had survived that and who was so terrified to say where she came from, who she was, that she never told you. She changed her name. She changed her identity because that happened because they wanted to protect themselves. Kids would betray their families, change their names, and never tell future generations where they came from. And I wanted to explore how would that affect future generations if they were raised by someone who was terrified to tell you who they really were. And so it was just this genesis of an idea that turned into this sort of generational tale of three women, the matriarch, her daughter, her granddaughter. And most of it is set in modern day America. The granddaughter is a 17-year-old girl who at the beginning of the novel finds out she's pregnant. And, you know, a teen pregnancy is bound to throw some turmoil into a home. And here you have this home full of secrets, full of people that don't tell one another what's going on in their lives. And so how would this one moment of finding out this pregnancy and what this almost feel like a devastation, how would then that bring these three women together? And so it was just sort of this genesis of an idea that started from reading a book called Mm -hmm. The Whisperers, and it turned into A Silver Willow by the Shore. So you left out a lot there. How does it turn into A Silver Willow by the Shore? So like, (laughs) you get this idea. All right. So when I write nonfiction, so when I wrote Master of Wonder called The Great, I built out you know, chapter summaries, mm-hmm. right? So you, I know generally where the book is going. And then when I actually sit down to write the chapter, I build a very, very detailed outline. Basically, it's so detailed to where once I start writing in paragraph form, I know it's time to write. It's mm-hmm. kind of my rule. Do you outline the book? Like how does, or do you just sit down and write sequentially until <clears throat> you feel like it's done? That's sort of kind of what I do. And there's different rules of thought for fiction writers. Some people really feel strongly about outlining. I typically have, when I start a book, I typically know who my characters are. 
I know the beginning of the story really well, and I almost always know the end of the story. I almost always know where they're going to end up. The middle gets muddy for me. So if I try and think about it too long, I get paralyzed and I don't start. So for me, the best thing to do is just start writing and see what happens and be surprised by the story. And so there was actually, there was one moment in writing, and I'm not going to tell what it is because then it'll spoil the surprise for the reader. But there was one moment in A Silver Willow by the Shore when the grand mother was telling her story. And I was sort of messing with format a little bit with Silver Willow, where the grandmother is telling her story in first person, hmm. but the rest of the book is written in typical third person format. Interesting. Because I wanted the reader to be able to get into the grandmother's head because the reader is going to know all the secrets that the daughter and the granddaughter hmm. don't know. Hmm. So I wanted them to be inside the grandmother's head. And there was one moment when I was just writing and then the grandmother's name is Elizaveta, and she said something, and I was just like, whoa. <laughs> I didn't know that's where this was going. And then it just opened up this whole new rabbit trail. And so for me, the heaviest editing that has to be done on my book is usually the middle section because it, you can tell it's where I was getting – I was having to force the story out a little bit because I was trying to get to the part that I knew. Hmm. So maybe outlining would help with that, but – for the most part, that just doesn't seem to work for me. It's just better for me to start and then see where the story leads me. Knowing where you're going. Knowing, knowing, knowing having the end in mind. Having the end in mind. I mean, this other book that I finished that I'm sort of sitting on for a little while, yeah. I hope we'll do something with it at some point, but... I actually sort of wrote myself in a hole at one point with one of the characters. I was like, oh, shoot, I don't know what I'm doing here. Yeah. And so that one I had to unweave a little bit. So sometimes it gets me in trouble. I actually just started a new book that I'm super, super excited about. And for the first time, I feel like I know I have a pretty good handle yeah. of the whole story. That's awesome. So it, this is fun because I've never really written that way before. Yeah. I know we can't talk about that next book yet, That's but I'm super excited about that book. <laughs> more, I, I, yeah, more than any of the others. <laughs> so when I was writing Master of One, I don't know if you remember this, but I was writing this chapter on, you know, okay, once you found the one vocational thing that you're going to commit to, and once you're focused on it, right, and you've said, this is the thing I'm going to master – how do people become world-class masters of their craft, right? And I read tons and tons and tons of business literature. I did lots of interviews, right? One of the things that kept coming up over and over again, one of the keys to mastery that I outlined in Master of One are apprenticeships, right? And that's a pretty, it sounds like an ancient term, right? Mm -hmm. But this idea of, yeah, once you know what you want to get great at, humbly submitting yourself to the authorities of, of people who have come before you and have already mastered that craft. And that can be done directly, right, in a traditional mentor-protege type relationship, or it can be done indirectly, right? And I think a lot of authors, I, I don't know what that mentorship relationship looks like if you're outside of a university setting. Like, that's mm -hmm. really hard. So I think a lot of authors have these, like, indirect apprenticeships, people that they look up to and they just study their writings and they analyze everything that they do. Maybe they email them and ask them for advice. Like, have you had indirect sort of mentors that you've looked to to really study how they write and structure story? Yes. I mean, I've had very extremely indirect mentors in that I would even, and he doesn't know it, he's my best friend and he's my mentor, Stephen King. <laughs> but I pretty much will read anything he writes, even if it scares the pants off me. It's not my favorite genre that he <laughs> writes, but he is so brilliant at his craft. Every single one of his novels is basically a case study in character development mm. and dialogue. And then his book on writing, that's mm. the title of the book, on writing, is basically for me, I believe it is the Bible for writers. Mm. I, I feel like every writer should read it. I reread it about every 18 months just because it's so motivating and it's just so practical. So just from a very practical standpoint, I do consider him a mentor because he's taught me the art of writing well. And then there are some more that are maybe a little bit more direct, like people that I've met at conferences mm -hmm. that are maybe a step ahead of me in the, you know, they've, they've written, they've published five or six or seven or more books and mm -hmm. they have an understanding because it's the fiction world is different from the nonfiction world. 
It's much harder to navigate as far as marketing and launching a book. It's very different. You know, there's less of a need for platform, but there's still a need for platform. Hmm. And how do you build a platform? Hmm. And, you know, how do you build a platform and still write? Right. And so there are, I do have some people that I reach out to for that. And even Doug Gresham became one of those for me, you know, when I, when I shared with him just some of my frustration of, I want to, people say I'm a good writer, but I don't have a platform. So they aren't offering me the good deals. And, you know, and he was very good about, you don't need a platform. You do what you're good at doing and go with it. So let's talk about this. So in the vernacular of Master of One, your one thing is super clear. Mm -hmm. You're an exceptional writer. Mm -hmm. But in order to be successful at that craft, and I think a lot of people like struggle with this, right? Like I know what I'm great at, but in order for that greatness to be seen by many, many people, I also have to figure out how to do these other things. Mm-hmm. Well, does that make sense yes. at all? Right? Uh-huh. Like I know you like we've talked a little bit about that. So like that's got to be frustrating, right? Like that you want to be doing, you'd be happiest if you were just writing and not worry yes. about marketing. How have you pushed through that frustration in order to continue down this path of writing books? Or have you largely ignored it? Have you basically just said, you know what? I'm just going to write and the right publisher will market the right book. Or I mean, are you trying to get great at the marketing side of it? I've let go of it just a little bit because it, it did become so frustrating to me because I am not good at the marketing. I know that I'm not good at it. And at this phase in my life, I don't have time to become good at marketing. I have five children. The only time that I have to do anything is basically between the hours of 5 and 6.30 a.m. And, you know, maybe the occasional weekend away that I'm lucky to grab. So there's no time for me to figure out how to market in that time. If I want to write good books, I can write good books. And then someday, you know, maybe I'll do better at marketing. But right now, the best I can do is just give the best offering that I have. And the best offering that I have is to write good stories. Yeah, that's well said. So I recognize the importance of playing the game to a degree. And I believe that it's important to, I mean, I worked hard on these books. I I want people to read them. So I have to do some things, but I can't do all the things. And that's largely why I don't write nonfiction too, because Mm. it is much more important to have that platform relationship Mm -hmm with nonfiction. And I have a nonfiction story idea that I'm sitting on right now that I just can't do anything with because I'm just not willing to worry about the platform piece. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of wisdom in like recognizing that. Right. Right. And also recognizing one, you can always find partners to help on those things, Mm -hmm. be it a publisher or somebody else. But two, you know, at the end of the day, you're not responsible for the results of your work, right? The the Lord is the one who blesses and multiplies and produces results. And so, yeah, I just respect you for like remaining focused on getting great at the craft that you're great at and like doubling down on that. And I don't always do it with a good attitude. I I mean, there are times where I, you know, I just feel like, ah, when's it going to be my turn? When am I going to get the big break? But I mean, what you said is spot on really, truly, if I believe that this gift that I have is from the Lord and I want to offer it back to back to him 100%, then I really shouldn't be so focused on the results as I am on just him getting the glory for what I'm doing. Yeah. So how much time are you spending writing? I mean, an hour and a half a day, basically 90 minutes. Basically, it boils down to that. And what is that? This is news to me, by the way. 5 to 6.30 a.m. I love it. So (laughs) what do that 90 minutes look like? Do you know the day prior? Like before you sit down, do you know what you're going to write and where you got to pick back up in the story? Like Some days I do. I mean, some mornings I will wake up and I'm ready to go. In an hour and a half, I can punch out, you know, 2,500 words easily. (laughs) And then some mornings I wake up and I stare at a blank screen for 30 minutes and then I decide there's other things I should probably be doing with my time. That's why I say not every single morning ends up being a writing morning. But, and again, it's when I reach those hard points in the story where I wasn't really sure where I was going. Those are the ones that I slog through. And so those are the days where in an hour and a half, I might get 500 words written. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, and you can tell when you read that first draft, like, whoa, you were not feeling it today, right. were you? And then you can tell when there was one weekend with Silver Willow, actually. I got away for the weekend and I hadn't had time to write in maybe three weeks. I had, wow. So I'd just been thinking about the story. And that's when, when I'm simmering on the story but don't have time to write – 
I told my husband one night, I was like, I need, I need to get a hotel room and get away because I'm gonna explode. And I got a hotel room and in 24 hours, I wrote 23,000 words. I mean, I basically wrote a quarter of the book in 24 hours because I'd been thinking about it so much and my fingers almost couldn't keep up with my brain. So I think this is true with nonfiction writing too. Like, I think that time of not sitting in front of the laptop and just letting an idea simmer, I think that is writing. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's where writing happens is when you have the white space mentally to make creative connections between ideas, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, is that that true for you? So, like, how do you – are you intentional about that? Like, do you have intentional time where you're like, okay, I'm going for a run so that I can think out the story? Or does it kind of happen accidentally? It usually happens accidentally, but when I find that I've had several days in a row of it being very difficult to write, that's when I know I need a break. And so I'll either maybe sleep in or, you know, I mean, and sometimes like right now our youngest child is having very difficult time sleeping. And so we have not had a lot of good sleeping nights, which means I've had fewer writing more because I just can't get out of bed that early. Hmm. So I can feel the story sort of, and those are the like the bubbling times where it's hmm. like, it's almost frustrating that I can't write, hmm. but it's good too, because I know when I, when I have that time that I'm going to be able to get something done. So sometimes it's accidental and sometimes I know I need it and I take it. I take that white space time. Yeah. I've started, I'm not a big exerciser, right? Like uh, for the sake of exercise itself, but I've started running almost every day for 30, 45 minutes right before the last like 90 minute block of my day. And I found that like that time is magic for Mm -hmm. making creative connections between ideas. When, When I was working downtown, I would frequently go on walks around downtown and I would just like walk aimlessly. Like Mm -hmm. I would end up at, you know, a mile away from my office uh, just trying to like unpack ideas. I think there's a lot of wisdom there. Well, and a fun little running slash writing story for you. So last year I was sort of in between projects again and it was same thing. I I went for a run and I wasn't even really going for a run to think about writing. I was just more, you know, I just need to get out of the house. And I was running, and as I was running, this squirrel ran in front of me on the sidewalk and stopped and stared at me, and I stopped, and we both kind of stared at each other for a second, and like I thought the squirrel was going to start singing and dancing. like He was looking at me so intently, and then he turned and ran off, and I mean, immediately I had this idea, and so I finished the run, and by the time I got home from the run, I had a character, I had the idea of a YA book that this is the one I'm halfway through that I'm sort of sitting on right now, but it was just this delightful character character who sees the world in a different way. And there is an incident in the book where she and a squirrel have a moment. And so it was like, sometimes, and this is, you know, my husband always shakes his head at me because he thinks I'm a weirdo, because this is part of the problem of having an overactive imagination is like squirrels sing and dance. But it's fine, because sometimes it's fun. And and maybe that book will end up just being a creative writing exercise. I don't know. But it was just a fun little moment that happened. Yeah, I'm such a fan of this like idea of like solitude and like mm-hmm. mental white space and like trying to be proactive and creating it. I think it's really important. Where is your favorite place you've like physical space you've ever written? Ooh, that's a good question. My friend Wendy Speak, mm-hmm. she's also a I love writer. Wendy Speak, yeah. Yes, she's an amazing writer and she's getting ready to publish a great book called The Sugar Fast. But she and I used to do, for five years, she and I did creative retreats where we would invite different creatives together. Um, There were a couple of photographers. There was a teacher who would um, teach Shakespeare and do big Shakespeare in a week thing every year. And then a couple of us were writers. And we would go to her lake house in Northern California every Hmm. year for a week. And uh, that's where a good portion of Like a River from its course was written. Hmm. And that was probably one of my favorite places. It was beautiful. The scenery was beautiful. It was very quiet during the day. We just sort of all went to our corners of the house to do our work. And then we'd come together at the end and and share what we'd worked on. And so that that may be one of my favorite places that I've written. I just this summer went on a little writer's expedition journey to London for a week. And I spent a day in the little town where Jane Austen lived. Mm-hmm. And I now have a very big dream to go back there and write because you can stay in these little guest quarters where her brother used to own a house. And so that's like my new dream is in a few years down the road to maybe apply to stay there and work on a book. That's super, super cool. I've always wanted to write a book at the Kilns. Oh, uh, man. Lewis's home. Brilliant. Which is incredible. Yes. And his little study and his desk is just That was my second favorite place that I visited on this trip. Yes. When you're writing, do you... 
I think this is interesting to ask people of all professions, whether or not they're writers. I, I'm just like super interested in this. Like, do you talk out ideas or are you pretty reclusive? Like you work them out in your head or do you have to like collaborate with other people and talking stuff out? I have a couple of people that I do talk stuff out with. It's not that I don't trust other people, but I know sometimes that what I'm saying sounds weird. You know, just the idea of talking about these characters like they're real. And so I do have a couple of friends who they get the process. They're not fiction writers themselves, but they're appreciators of the written word. And one of them is actually like, she is my dearest friend, my editor. I don't put anything into the world if she hasn't read it first. And she's really good at listening to me bat around ideas and not making me feel silly about them, you know, because some people when you're talking, I know it sounds funny what I'm saying, you know, so I don't like to talk about and I'm not very good at expounding on ideas or books until I'm I'm sure about them, Mm. unless it's with one of these people that Mm. can let me talk in circles a little bit. All right. So we've talked about your writing habits, your routines as you put together fiction. What are some of your spiritual habits and disciplines? Well, that's tricky because, you know, I I try to set aside those morning times for writing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if the writing's not coming, that's when I pick up my Bible. Mm -hmm. I try, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of fitting that in where there's space. And I hate to say that because it's like, oh, you're fitting God into the right. leftovers. Sure, right. It sounds so, it's, it doesn't sound like a good Christian. But I do believe it's the way that the Lord created me. And I also feel like he gets honor when I work mm-hmm. on my writing. And so I, I do feel like I'm I'm having a, a spiritual moment when I'm working on a book as much as I do when I'm when I'm reading the word and when I'm praying. And so, you know, I wouldn't say that I have your quote unquote daily devotional. Sure. Uh, but, you know, finding time to make sure that I'm spending time with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And again, I've got five children. I pray a lot. <laughs> right, right, right. And I've got one child that doesn't sleep. So I pray a lot at 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Lord and I are always talking. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as just spiritual disciplines, I, w- I would say I'm always working to be more disciplined. But part of my discipline is honoring him with the gifts that he's given me. And right now, in the time that I have, that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the way that I feel like I'm able to do that. So you and Lee, I love you guys both very dearly. You guys are two of the most devoted followers of Christ I know. Mm-hmm. And yet you are not overtly evangelical at all about your faith in your Mm -hmm. writing, right? I think of you, anytime I hear that C.S. Lewis quote of, man, we're talking a lot about Lewis today. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know know we both love Lewis. We don't need more Christian books. We need more Christians writing great books, Mm -hmm. right? The gist of the quote. I think about you a lot Mm -hmm. with that. Like you focus first and foremost on just creating great works of art and great books. Was that like a conscious choice to take that approach? Or has it become conscious as you've kind of gotten in this career of writing? I would say it, it was a conscious choice. You know, my senior year at Baylor, I was about to graduate. I was this professional writing major. I knew I wanted to write books. And John Grisham came to Baylor mm-hmm. and to speak. And he packed out our big, you know, whatever you call it, we're the theater. Auditorium? Is that- yes. Yeah, sure. I'm a writer yeah. of all the words. <laughs> Anyways, he packed it out. And so, you know, Baylor is in the 90s. It was very, you know, it's good Christian school. And there was a lot of the good Christian kids that went there. So one girl marched up to the microphone at the end when he was doing a Q&A. And she said, you know, Mr. Grisham, you say that you're a Christian, but you don't write Christian books. So what do you have to say for yourself? And you could hear the whole auditorium. Auditorium, that's the word I was looking for. You could hear the whole auditorium go, ugh. And I loved his response, and it's always stuck with me. He sort of leaned into the microphone. He looked her right in the eye, and he said, I am a Christian who writes books. I am not a Christian writer. Next question. And I just remember thinking, that's what I want to be. I want to be a Christian who writes books. I never set out to be a inspirational fiction writer, Christian fiction writer. Now, that is the category that Like a River from its course ended up in, partly because that's just where I got my foot in the door. I well, met that was an, the publisher. Right. right. I, mean, I met yeah. an agent who worked in the CBA. What's CBA? For those who Christian know. Book Association. Yeah. And so it wasn't general market, but after 63 rejections, <laughs> I, I, you, you go with, with 
who is excited and passionate about your project. Mm -hmm. And she was excited and passionate about it. And the publisher was. Mm -hmm. And so it was not my intention to become a Christian fiction author. That's just where I ended up. And so there's always been a little tension. But you're not. I mean, that that book, again, I haven't read it from cover to cover yet. But like, there are redemptive themes to it. There are themes. And that's, and I will say that the Christian fiction world is, heading that direction so, anyway. And just so, okay, so just so I understand the difference, right? So Christian fiction, as we would typically define it, is the character wakes up, does her quiet time every day, right, right. or and her lost friend prays the prayer in right. chapter 12. Like right? if I said Christian fiction, I would venture to guess that most people immediately would think Amish. Right. I yes. mean, that's right. basically what it's been for Which a long like time. Which is like oddly dominated the Christian fiction market. <clears throat> for a long time. We can talk time. about that on another day. So but It's the, changing. That, that's changing. The it market's is, changing. It, the market's changing. Now, you have to, we're working to change the perception of Christian fiction. Yeah, they don't even call it Christian fiction anymore. It's called inspirational fiction. Hmm. But even that, you know, there's... There are still readers, though, that long for that sort of, um, and that's okay. Everybody has their own preference. They long for that innocent, but that's not who I set out to be. And so there's always been sort of this tension of how do I continue to write in a way that honors what I, I, I want to make the Lord's name known. I want him to get the glory, but I don't want my characters to have to pray in order to do that. And so just working to include, like you said, themes of redemption, themes of grace in Silver Willow, there is one character who, she is a woman of faith. Mm. None of the other characters really come to share her faith, but there's one character that by the end, maybe it's it's like Susan. You question what happened. Right. But there is, there's forgiveness and there's love and there's, you know, brokenness and, and healing and being made whole because that's all real life. Hmm. So that's what I want to bring to fiction novels is I want it to be real and I, I want people to feel like they can identify on any level, whether they are a person of faith or not. Yeah. I love the Grisham quote. Oh. I'm going to come back to that. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's gold. Very similar to Lewis quote. We're going to have John Grisham on the show. Grisham's still writing, right? Yeah, I think he's got a new book out. Like pretty frenetically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he produces at, a, at an unbelievable speed. So let me ask you this. How, as an author of fiction, you've got this like, you have this tremendous power, right? And influence and you create these worlds, these characters, these plots, this tension. And as you're building that world, how does your faith inform that process? I mean, you just touched on that, but like, how do you think about, okay, my characters aren't going to go to church necessarily. They're not going to pray necessarily, but like, how does your faith influence the building of those worlds? Well, I think all of us who've lived any amount of time, we have experienced heartache and joy, right? And we've experienced high highs and low lows. And so pain and suffering is universal, and how do we come out of that? And one thing that I will say that I is has become typical in a lot of popular general market fiction, you know, the stuff that makes like the Oprah's list and all that stuff is it's very dark. Mm. And I'll use this book as an example, um, The Girl on the Train. I was just going to say that. I read that book a couple of years ago. Now, it was a greatly written book. I was about to say it was a great book. I didn't think it was a great book. I thought it was a superbly well written book. Yeah. I read it in like, a couple of days, I couldn't put it down. But I remember at the beginning thinking, man, this is really sad and dark. And then at the end thinking, that was really sad and dark. There was no redemption. <laughs> no redemption right. And that is a problem in a lot of general market fiction is there's the problem of pain hmm. that we are all can identify with, but there's not the redemption. Hmm. And so I don't want all my books to to be tied up with a perfectly neat little bow because that's not real life either. But there needs to be some redemption to where when the reader puts the book down, they feel um, hope. Hmm. And so I want I want to tell stories of hope that still reveal the the brokenness that we can all identify with. Hmm. I love that. Yeah, and it, yeah, I think that's a lesson for all of us, regardless of what our vocations are, right? We may not preach the gospel explicitly at work, but all of us have opportunities to tell stories of hope mm-hmm. in the products that we create and the way that we serve our customers. And that hope for us Christians is fueled by the work of Jesus Christ, right? right? That's the ultimate secure hope. All right, three questions I like to ask every guest. Okay. I'm really interested to hear what you say about this first one. Okay. Which book or books do you gift the most? Mm. Well, to writers, Stephen King's On Writing. I've never read it. Oh, Jordan. I know. 
But is it, isn't it like all, it's all fiction focused, right? Uh, well, the first half of the book is basically his memoir, which is so fascinating. Okay, that's interesting. And then right, the second half of the book is, is on writing. And it's a lot of fiction focused, but you would, you would like okay. it. All right, I'll read it. Okay. I'm going to give it to you. Well, you're going to gift it. Yes, yeah. I am. I'm going to gift it. <laughs> okay. The three that I gift the most. You know, what's funny is I think I mostly gift nonfiction books, even though I'm a fiction writer. Because I, I gift, well, I did write a nonfiction. I co-authored a nonfiction right. book with Wendy Speed called yep. Life Creative. It's a great book. So I, I do gift that one quite a bit to other moms who feel like they're drowning, that feel like they have these creative gifts, but they're drowning in motherhood. Mm -hmm. And so this one is one that I like to give just as an encouragement. Mm -hmm. And my favorite novel, I, I wouldn't say I gifted a lot, but it's yeah. my most recommended whenever I, there's two, whenever people ask me, you know, what books should I read? My two favorite are Barbara Kingsolver's The Poisonwood Bible mm -hmm. and Anna Karenina. And what? Anna Karenina. Huh. Interesting. Tolstoy. It, okay. it, I, it's another one. I read it like every two years. It's my favorite book of all time. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Tolstoy. Okay. I like it. All right. What one person would you most like to hear talk about this intersection of their faith and their work on this podcast? On this podcast? Yeah. Well, John Grisham. That'd be awesome. Would be amazing. Let's get Grisham. Yeah, seriously, that'd be great. It would, I, because, and if you get him, um, I, I want to come ask him some Absolutely. questions. Did he go to Baylor? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't okay. know. I don't think he did. He just came as a speaker. Interesting. I think Doug Gresham would be fascinating yeah. to talk with. Doug's already said he's going to be on the show. We're, we're, we're working to schedule it. There so you go. That'd be great. Okay. Yeah. No, Doug I think those would be the, the two that would. What be about of our friends? So, like, we know so many of the same people. Like, who in our group of friends, you're like, yeah, that person loves Jesus and they are exceptional at what they do? Ooh. Who? Well, you know, my husband would actually be really good. I know. <laughs> I know. So your husband and I are going to be on another trip together yes. here really soon. Next week. So, yeah. So I told him if we have some extra time, we'll think about it. So Kelly's husband, Lee, is a truly exceptional sales executive. And uh, yeah, that, that could be- You know who else would be really excellent to talk to is Sean Groves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lee mentioned that. Yes. We'll, have to, we'll have to talk to Sean. All right. Last question. One piece of advice that you would give to somebody who's pursuing mastery of the art of writing, maybe they're just getting started, but they really envision being a writer, what would you say to that person? Uh, I would just say you have to believe in your ability to craft something well. And in order to believe in your ability to craft something well, you need to study the craft. Hmm. And so you need to learn to write well. You need to, you know, you need to know just even the basics, like don't write in the passive voice and no basics of grammar and that sort of thing. I mean, you don't have to know all, listen, I am the queen of overusing the comma. I use it. My editor, it drives her nuts. I use commas way too much. I know I do. I'm sorry. I can't figure out when you're supposed to use it when you're not. But um, so you don't need to like be perfect at grammar, but just the basics of, of grammar, you know, when to use a semicolon and when to use the past tense and the present perfect and all that. And then just once you feel like I, I can do this, then believe it and do it. Yeah. I think for a long time, I didn't consider myself a writer because I wasn't published. Hmm. And so I, you know, people would ask me what I do and I'd be like, oh stay-at-home mom and sometimes I blog and I might I really hope to write a book someday and you know now when people ask I'm, I'm a writer what have you published well okay I've only had one fiction book come out I've, well now two I wouldn't call myself a prolific writer but I'm a writer it's what I do and I know I'm good at it so I'm gonna I'm gonna own that and be confident in it and so I think once you once you feel like you've mastered the craft you understand it and you're practicing the craft daily hmm. it doesn't necessarily matter if you're published right. or if you self-publish versus traditional publish, um, that doesn't matter. What matters is you studied something, you worked hard at it and you're offering it back as just a sacrifice of this is what I did. Yeah. I love that. It's great advice for anyone in any vocation. If there's something we want to get masterful at it, study the heck out of it, mm -hmm. right? And yeah, go submit it. yourself humbly to people who have already mastered the craft Kelly, I just want to commend you. I'm such a big fan of yours. I'm grateful for our friendship. I'm grateful for your commitment to the ministry of excellence and just like creating really great art that tells these redemptive themes that implicitly points to the gospel. I think, again, I haven't read like we're from its course cover to cover yet, but so many of my friends say, yes, Jesus's name isn't, you know, paramount and, and screaming from the rooftops in this book, but the gospel is, mm -hmm. right? The the uh, the themes of the gospel are. So I'm just so grateful for you. Your work is important and I'm thankful that you make space for it in the midst of 
five kids, <laughs> and I understand a little bit of how difficult that is. I've been in your house when all five <laughs> kids are going nuts. So thank you very much. Hey, the book is A Silver Willow by the Shore by Kelly Stewart. It just came out. You can pick up a copy right now on Amazon. Kelly, thanks for hanging out. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate what you do as well. So thanks for encouraging others. What a great conversation with my friend, Kelly Stewart. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I learned so much. I really, I don't understand fiction. I think you guys are learning this about me. I wish I did. It's something I wish I loved. I just don't get it. And I certainly don't, wouldn't even know where to start to write it. I'm so glad I have the ability to sit down with a world-class fiction writer like Kelly and just pick her brain. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to The Call to Mastery so you never miss an episode in the future. And if you're already subscribed, you know what I'm going to ask you to do? Please review the podcast. Take 30 seconds, go review the podcast on the podcast app of your choice. If you have no idea how to do either of those things, head to jordanrainer.com slash podcast, or even made it really, really simple for you to do both of those things. Hey, before you guys go, I got another conversation with another author that I want to share. As you guys know, I'm a big reader. A couple of months ago, I started sharing some of the books that I've added to my personal reading list and my weekly devotional email. By the way, if you don't receive that weekly faith and work devotional, Sign up for free right now at jordanrainer.com. Anyways, I've started adding these books to the end of those devotionals, showing you guys what I'm adding to my reading list. And I recently sat down with the author of one of those books that I actually recommended a while back. Uh, it's a book called Win at Home First. And it's written by this guy named Corey Carlson, who's based in Cincinnati. This is a great book. I've really enjoyed it. Super practical tips for being exceptional both at work and at home. Kara, my wife and I, we were at dinner with our best friends Clay and Bethany a, a few weeks ago. And Bethany, who's an avid reader, was saying that she saw my recommendation, bought the book, and devoured it and absolutely loved the book. That's a big endorsement coming from Bethany, who's quite the critical reader. I hope she's listening to this episode. So anyways, I recently sat down to talk to Corey Carlson about Win at Home First, what the book's all about. So without further ado, Here's my conversation with Corey Carlson. Corey Carlson, thanks for joining me, buddy. Well, thank you very much, Jordan, for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, so I'm really excited to talk about this book. I, I mentioned in my introduction that I was at dinner with uh, with some friends recently, uh, one of whom is an avid reader, and she saw my endorsement of your book, went at home first, read it, and like loved it. Like we spent, mm. I don't know, like a quarter of dinner talking about this thing. So I uh, found the book to be really, really helpful. So let's just dive in. T talk to me a little bit about what the book's about, Corey. Yeah, great. Well, that's fun to hear about the the dinner party and someone enjoying the book. Good to hear. Uh, you never know when you write a book who it's going to impact and how it's going to impact. So it's fun to hear. You know what the book's about is, or you know, some background on the book is. I do executive coaching. I used to be at corporate America. I hired an executive coach about you know six years ago. Used the executive coach for those three years, and then eventually said I wanted to go and do this myself. And, you know, the reason for it is, as I was learning the content, a lot of the content, which is in the book, I was using on my direct reports at the time I was president of sales for a national contractor, had 30 people reporting to me, some of which believed in Jesus, some of which did not. And so the ones that did, I said, hey, Jesus said, here's a tool to shape of the idea. And I saw growth and transformation. But what was crazy is even the ones that didn't believe, I'd find another quote, maybe a quote by Steve Jobs or somebody else. And here's the same tool, shape, or idea. And I started to see transformation. I started to see people dating their spouses again, people starting to be intentional with their kids. And it became purpose over profits. But yet our bottom line also increased. So as I was doing this in my particular job, I was like, man, I, I want to do this for other clients, not just my direct reports. And there's nothing wrong, obviously, with staying inside corporate America, but I just felt God calling on me to go outside. And so I get hired by clients to help for the vision and values, or how do I improve my profit and loss statement? How do I improve the culture of the company? So those were the reasons I would get hired as an executive coach. But what was interesting as I was having these one-on-one -on -one type discussions 
what was really keeping the business owner, the executive up at night wasn't even really business related. It was how do they connect with their spouse more? How are they more intentional with their kids? How do they lose 10 pounds? How do they drink less? Just all these different things. And so I kept finding myself saying, you have to win at home first in order to have extra capacity to lead well at work, in order to have margin in your life to be creative or strategic, in order to sit down and be empathetic with someone. And so that's what we started to work on. And after just continually saying that one phrase, win at home first, then, you know, during some of my quiet times, I think, you know, God would nudge me, hey, you need to write a book, but I would ignore it because uh, I never thought of myself as an author, you know, civil engineer by degree, we're known not to be able to be able to write. Uh, but then clients started saying, you need to write a book. And so I began the journey and published the book you know, just a couple months ago. So it's been a wild ride. Yeah. And we talked about this. So when I was running Threshold 360 as CEO, one of our core values was be exceptional at work and at home. But I like the the lens that you're coming at this topic with that you have to win at home first in order to win at work. I love that. All right, Corey, who's this book for? So obviously this is for people where, for the people that you started teaching this content to, people in corporate America, but is it broader than that? Like what's the audience for this book? Mm-hmm. The audience for the book <laughs> When I wrote the book, it was for business leaders and owners and executives. I can relate most to them. I then myself was then uh, was that individual, someone who's married, someone who has kids. Uh, they can they can pull from different pieces in the book. But what I'll tell you, Jordan, is I've had people who don't fit that who are loving the book and they're finding pieces out of it. And so I. My heart when I wrote it was, hey, this is who I think it's, it's going to go for, but it's gone to others. And I think one reason it does is because all of us want to live a life to the full. All of us want to have life and have it abundantly, right, as Jesus talks about in John 10, 10, but we don't. It's chaotic. We're running from meeting to meeting, email to email. And so there's a couple things that go through this book that anybody, no matter what they do, stay-at-home mom or high-level executive, that they can pull out of it. And the first part has a lot to do with identity. Where are we taking our questions of our identity? Like, who are we? And understanding our identity. So have some great content that really helped me that I learned that I, you know, share in the book. And then the other is a way to live a prioritized life so that we are intentional. So, you know, we're controlling our schedule and our schedule is not controlling us. So we're making the decisions. There's a quote that's in the book that I absolutely love that was given to me was the quantity of our no's will drive the quality of our yeses. I love that. And by using a framework that's in the book called the five capitals, it actually allows you to have a framework that you can make decisions. Do I say yes or no to that? Mm -hmm. Does it align with who I am and what I'm going after? And so we're not reactionary. I love that. The quantity of your no's impact the quality of your yes. That's really, that's really good. I mean, that's the heart of Master of One, my newest book. Mm -hmm. So- All right. Last question for you. So you're actually a member of my audience. You're subscribed to my weekly faith and work devotional. And I would argue you're you're a pretty good profile of who my audience is, right? The the people listening to this podcast are high achieving Christians who are seeking to do really exceptional work for the glory of God and for the good of others. How is this book going to serve that audience well? You know, great question. And, you know, part of it is Helping like line out the five capitals. So there, there's a framework that you have a structure to think through and make des- decisions so you can have greater impact. And so you can do some of those other pieces. And, and so that, that's part one. And there's some different pieces in part one about, you know, pruning, understanding the things you to say no to, to have, you know, the greater impact. But then the rest of that book is the idea of, hey, how do I manage both the responsibility, the execution of getting things done? With the tension of, I also need to have a relationship. I can't just be going all about results. There has to be a relationship in there. And so there's some different frameworks that will help you think through. It's both relationship and responsibility. It's not just, hey, we got to crank out the creative work all day long. And so it's finding that tension between responsibility and relationship. And so that's provided in there as well. And as I work with clients, a lot of their missteps on not winning at home is their marriage. So provide some tools that have helped me and help clients, whether it's dating your spouse. That's like the number one thing. If anyone doesn't get anything out of this, I would love for them to buy the book. I'd love to get more, but 
date your spouse. So can I ask a follow-up question? Yes. How do you date your spouse? Well, like you specifically. Me specifically, we make sure we go on at least two dates a month where we get away and we just go have dinner. And, so, you know, sometimes it's a variety of different things. You know, maybe it's a, we go to a nice restaurant. Maybe we're going to a cheaper, casual restaurant. But it is to get away where her and I are looking eye to eye. There's no kids around. There's also no other friends around. It's just her and I. Where Holly and I got tripped up early in our marriage was we thought we were together. But what was the reality was we were with all these other people all the time. We were going on double <laughs> dates. We were having parties at our house. We were going to parties. And... We just lost sight of, hey, what's really going on in your life? How's your heart? You know, what what are you going after this season? And so it's so critical. And pe- you know, the pushback I always get is, you know, well, it costs a lot of money. Well, it's a lot less money than marriage counseling, and it's a heck yeah. of a lot cheaper than divorce. Yeah, it's exactly right. You know, Karen and I were actually talking about this idea of like just being alone on date nights instead of being with friends. Like we love going out with friends, but that's not really dating your spouse. And you see certain things come out of your spouse when they're with friends that you don't when you're alone. And that's a beautiful thing. But that alone time is is really, really critical. And we're also big believers in date nights don't need to be don't need to be fancy. I mean, quality time does not need to be expensive time to hit your bank account really hard. Hey, Corey, thanks for taking a couple minutes to talk about this book. Like I said, I have loved the book. I found it to be super practical. I know a couple of my friends have as well. So thank you for writing it. I just commend you for writing an excellent book and sharing your story and sharing this advice with the world. So thanks for being here, buddy. Uh, Man, thank you very much, Jordan. Thanks for the support and the kind words. Appreciate it. Again, the book is Win at Home First by Corey Carlson. Go pick up a copy today. Hey, that's it for today's episode. Again, if you enjoyed this episode, if you're enjoying the Call to Mastery in general, go subscribe to the show. And if you haven't already, please leave a review so that we can ensure that more people discover this podcast and that more people can more deeply connect their faith at their work and be exceptional both at work and at home. So, hey, guys, thank you so much for listening this week. I'll see you next time.